agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Oklahoma Christian University political scientist Trey Orndorff. Hey, Trey. Hey, Mike. It's great to be on the show with you. Yeah, I, I always enjoy, you know, we don't get a chance to do the show together all that often. And of course, originally, I was, we were actually scheduled to do it with uh, myself and Kristen, but of course, Kristen living in Florida and everything that's going on there with the storm, which we hope doesn't, doesn't hit her this weekend. We decided it would be better to try to give her, give her time to put up the storm shutters and do all that other stuff. And Trey, now you, you were in Florida, but now of course you're in Oklahoma where I guess tornadoes are really the thing, not so much hurricanes. Exactly. We decided just to go a little in, just a little inland. Yeah, just, and just a little so, bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, uh, we've been thinking and praying about everybody in Oklahoma, uh, in Florida here in Oklahoma. Absolutely. And, uh, so our, our thoughts to our co-hosts there and, and family and friends who are there. Yeah, definitely. And I also want to thank everyone who responded last week to my uh, sort of personal request for, for letters to my promotion committee about why the politics guys matters to you, why you think it's an important contribution, that sort of thing. Because Trey, you being an academic can appreciate that even though uh, while I think there's generally been more movement to accept sort of what's been called the scholarship of engagement, you know, it's still, it's still kind of a sell to some folks to explain why this kind of thing really matters. And so getting listeners to kind of help me out with this, that, that I really do appreciate that, you know? No, and that's incredible listeners, because I'll let you know, from my point of view, even for the administrators who think of this as being positive, you have to somehow quantify it when you're going up for promotions and for tenure. And if you can't, then nobody cares. It it can be the greatest (laughs) thing in the world, but if you can't show like, here's what happened and it's better now. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. It might as well not exist. Yep. Yep, that's so true. So again, thanks everyone. And if uh, if you still want to well, send me a, a letter, that would be awesome. I would appreciate it. Mike at politicsguys.com. And I won't know what my promotion committee decides until around the end of the year. But as soon as I hear anything, I will definitely let you know. So again, thanks so much. And one final thing before we get going, we want to thank our newest Patreon monthly supporter, and that is Christopher. Christopher, thank you so much for your support of the show. And also, she mentioned Christopher. Let me know whether you'd like a mug or a tote bag up. That's one of the great things that we have at the $10 above uh, monthly level is we'll send you out some of our, our swag. We have tote bags. We have mugs. We actually have keychains and, I don't know, probably dog collars and all kinds of other stuff. We've, we we have it all, but we're happy to send you one of those things at, at that level. And so, of course, you get that and our weekly bonus show and all kinds of other stuff. And to check all of it out, just go to patreon.com slash politics Okay. Do your do your dogs have uh, the politics guys you know, callers, Mike? You know, I haven't gotten them yet, but I think when they wear out, it would really make a lot of sense to kind of get them a pop, get them politics guys callers. I I would say so. Yeah, they're they're not really faithful listeners to the show, but <laughs> but they do like to be in the in in the room when I record it. So I think they would appreciate it. Yeah. I was just thinking a cute photo of dogs with collars. Anyway, oh, I well. like it. I like it. You know. Yeah. Okay, uh, so let's start, I thought, this week with some pretty important developments in the ongoing opioid crisis. On Monday, an Oklahoma judge ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay the state of Oklahoma $572 million in compensation for the damage caused by opioids. Now, in his ruling, which part of which he read from the bench, Judge Balkman said the opioid crisis has ravaged the state of Oklahoma and must be abated immediately. Now, this award at $572 million is certainly nothing to sneeze at, but it's a lot less than the $17.5 billion over 30 years that the state had requested for things like treatment, emergency care, law enforcement, social services, and a bunch of other things that are related to opioid addiction in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I should point out that Johnson & Johnson, this is kind of a strange twist of things, doesn't actually directly sell opioids But one of its subsidiaries does. And the state argued that even though it constituted a a small percentage of opioids sold in the state, other companies that Johnson and Johnson owned grew 
uh, processed and supplied somewhere around 60% of the ingredients used in opioids sold by most drug companies. And, and the state also argued that Johnson & Johnson played an active role in urging doctors to overprescribe opioids, in, in part by using misinformation and targeting the least knowledgeable doctors. Now, as you'd expect, Johnson & Johnson is appealing the ruling, and their argument is basically that, hey, we shouldn't be held liable for manufacturing and selling a, a, a legal, highly regulated drug, and that our advertising efforts didn't amount to misrepresentation or fraud. So, Trey, uh, what do you think about the ruling? You know, I'm wondering, uh, do you think Johnson & Johnson really bears some significant responsibility here? Or, or is this a kind of a case of Oklahoma going after sort of a tangentially involved company because it's got deep pockets? I'm going to say it's the second, Mike, yeah. as a matter of fact. And, and I understand there is a crisis in Oklahoma. So as we talk about this, you have to kind of separate what's happening to real people in the state from who's to blame and the legal aspect sure. here. And I'm going to get a little detailed with the listeners because what the judge actually ruled on is, is uh, very weird. Um, so from the bench, like you noted, he's going to argue that J and J had false misleading and dangerous marketing campaigns. However, the argument uh, for the actual case is that he found them guilty under a theory of public nuisance. Mm -hmm. Now that's really actually kind of unusual because usually public nuisance cases are when you're having something where uh, a company or a person is interfering with a public right on a road or, or something in general shared in common. So the fact that he had to fall back on the public nuisance is probably a result of the fact that even if you account for everything that J&J &J is providing drugs for, it only accounts, even according to them, to 1% of sales, which is why you have to do the public nuisance uh, go. My thought is here is that when J&J &J appeals this, because it's based on public nuisance, it's not going to move forward. And I don't think this is going to have the same kind of ramifications of, say, uh, the Purdue Pharma, which I know we also want to talk about. Yeah, you know, and and that's you mentioned this uh, separation between the clear and obvious damage that this has caused, and then sort of the, the liability aspect. And I think that's really important because, you know, when I first read this, I thought, geez, it it sounds like a a little bit of a stretch. And I get wanting to hold people responsible, but. Um, I think, and again, I feel so conflicted on this, but but it seems to me that this is sort of a, a stretch and that, uh, I, you know, I, I agree that probably on appeal, I would not at all be surprised if it's if it's overturned. And that might legally, I'm not saying that Johnson & Johnson didn't do some ethically questionable things. I think that's exactly. entirely possible. But I don't know that they actually did things that were illegal to the extent that, you know, that this kind of, this kind of a, a ruling will uh, be upheld on appeal. So, but, you know, you also mentioned the uh, Purdue Pharma thing. And of course, this is kind of a tip of an iceberg sort of situation because over 40 states have been, are lined up to pursue similar claims. And this is really the first state level case to go to trial. So a lot of other states certainly are watching this and are going to, I think, probably tailor some of what they do to what they've seen here. And, and that's not to mention that huge federal lawsuit that involves like nearly 2,000 plaintiffs, I think, of cities, counties, native tribes, and, and a bunch of other groups that's scheduled to begin in uh, October in, in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and of course, then you mentioned, you mentioned Purdue Pharma, which they're really sort of ground zero. I mean, there's no question that Purdue Pharma is, yep. is culpable because, in fact, they've actually admitted this in the past. They uh, settled already with Oklahoma for $270 million. And way back in 2007, they pled guilty to federal charges of misleading doctors and the public, and they paid a $635 million fine. Now, in, in that case, it looks like there might be 
a settlement, which would involve uh, a $12 billion payout, $3 billion coming from the family because it's a privately held company. And then they declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy, restructure as a public benefit trust, and that would contribute to the settlement over a number of years. And they'd also do things like provide anti-addiction medications and so forth. I mean, so uh, I think that that's a lot more likely to to actually be followed through on and so forth. But uh, it, it really reminds me in a way of, and I've mentioned this in, in other contexts, in the, the kind of whole big tobacco thing in the, the 90s, you know, where we're kind of seeing these multi-state suits come through and, you know, are pretty clearly, I think, uh, drug manufacturers who just knew that there were dangers and kind of plowed ahead despite that. And it's worth noting that one of the reasons why Purdue Pharma is in such a big is in such a crisis mode here is because they were the makers of OxyContin yeah. and they were specifically producing it and making misleading statements about the product that they had and were pushing out. Yeah. And so as a result, this is why they're why they're admitting guilt. I mean, it, it's very clear in this case for far. I, mean, I wouldn't want to take Purdue Pharma to court uh, if I was their defense attorney. Uh, and 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 I think this is the rightful. I think one of the things is difficult when you're thinking about legal analysis is that it's easy to forget that companies as incorporated entities are just like individuals. And so in the same way, you have individuals who look similar. That doesn't mean that you can prosecute all of them simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think what's happened here is that because we kind of glance at these things at kind of the 10,000 feet level of media, uh, all of these companies get uh, racked together. And so you get places like like Purdue Pharma, which has clearly done wrongdoing. They have admitted to wrongdoing. They produced things in, in, in horrendous ways. Uh, and then other things like J&J kind of get thrown into it, which again, like you were noting, doesn't mean that J&J maybe has never done anything a little unethical, but that's different than doing something uh, that is prosecutable. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think there's a lot of blame to go around here. Uh, I, in part, I would say if we look at kind of more fundamental causes, obviously, I would say that in part it has to do with the nature of the American healthcare system where doctors don't have much time to spend with patients. There's sort of a quick fix mentality, you know, and so that's part of it. Part of it also, I think, has to do with where we see sort of the epicenter of this. And it's in a lot of rural communities. And certainly you could say it's a it's a healthcare problem. It's an economic problem. It's even in a way you could argue sort of a, a spiritual problem. In a way, and of course, those are much deeper things that can't necessarily be fixed with uh, with with regulation. No, and and one, and I'm glad that you brought that up because on the healthcare side, I think this highlights a problem that most Americans have in their thinking about healthcare because they think about it as a fix for something that goes wrong, yeah. as opposed to an ongoing uh, staying healthy mentality, preventative healthcare. And you're right, that's not something that you can legislate differently. That is an attitude that we have about what we want. And then markets respond to those desires. And then it's a self-feeding, unfortunate uh, downplay. But the only way to fix that is to get lots of people to think very differently about how they ought to take care of themselves. Yeah. And I would argue another, uh, well, more of a kind of a state involvement way to do that would be to put more resources in the primary care and preventative medicine and that sort of thing. Because obviously there are a lot of Americans who, for various reasons, can't afford health care. And the only time they go to the doctor is when they are, you know, particularly sick and have a major issue that's, that's sort of festered for a while. And then that can become much harder to treat. That, I mean, that's part of a, obviously a, a much larger issue there. You know. Yes. I, I just think that even once, even if you're going to take that route, unless people are going to use it in those ways, you'll continue to end up having state backed market forces, which will reinforce the idea of treatment uh, as opposed to preventative uh, care. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a good point. You know, I, I was talking about this issue in my public policy class and uh, something a number of the students raised is the difference that they perceive in the reaction to the opioid crisis and the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1990s and what some of some of my students were saying is you know it sure does seem that when we have this sort of situation where a lot of uh, 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 white people 
are being affected and, and, you know, that it's a very different response to this kind of minority inner city thing yeah, that we saw in the, in the 1990s. And, you know, it was a, it was a sort of a, a charged issue to try to deal with in the classroom. And, uh, you know, a lot of students had some fairly strong opinions that, Hey, part of this is racial in nature. I was wondering what, what you think about that, Trey? I would agree with your students 100%. And you don't have to look any further than the way that we enforce marijuana policies across the country to recognize there's vast differences in the way that uh, white individuals are treated versus African-American individuals are treated when it comes to marijuana prosecution. Because again, we look at that different. The African-American is the dark, dirty uh, drug pusher who's going to take you into something deeper. And then the lacrosse player who smokes marijuana in the basement is just having a normal high school slash college experience. And so we're not going to pursue those kinds of uh, issues. And I, so, yes, it's just on a bigger level. And anybody who really wants to deny that has it, it has to overlook all of the evidence when it comes yeah. to rates of prosecution, especially when it deals with drug crimes over the last number of decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also one one important distinction is that people see prescription drugs as somehow more legitimate and okay and that sort of thing, right? And that that's certainly a, a factor in it. Yes, for sure. But it, 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 and we have such an unusual. I don't even know how to have a word for this, uh, uh, Mike, but we have such an unusual relationship with drugs in the United States. Yeah. And I think that's part of the weird mystique that it is for people like, you know, it, it, there is no fundamental difference besides they're classified differently. But anyway, yeah. that's probably yeah. a different kind of conversation. A, a, a much longer conversation would be an interesting one to have at some point. Absolutely. But yeah, let's uh, let's move on to our next story. And this is uh, uh, that. Early this week, a former Republican representative, Joe Walsh, declared his intention to challenge Donald Trump for the 2020 Republican presidential nomination. Now, Walsh, whose national political experience consists of a single term representing Illinois' 8th Congressional District, is now the second Republican to announce a challenge yep. to Trump. He joins former Massachusetts governor and 2016 Libertarian Party vice presidential nominee, Bill Weld. Um. Now, Trey, this is all going on in your party, so I'm going to defer to you, at least initially. Uh, what do you think about Walsh challenging Trump? I mean, he can't he can't possibly think he'll win. So what's going on here, do you think? Well, there's there's a lot of things to talk about here, Mike. And the first is, is I don't always agree with the National Review, but their headline on this this week is is just perfect. If Joe Walsh is the answer, ask a different question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yes, I mean, yes, because Wal I mean, Walsh, uh, for listeners, maybe you don't know this because he's not a particularly, I mean, if you don't pay careful attention, you're not going to know this guy. Uh, but he's 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 basically Donald Trump, but less popular, having not won a presidential <laughs> yeah. election. Um, he argued that Obama was a Kenyan and suggested he was a closet Muslim. Does that sound familiar? Right. I mean, um, the, the only real big difference between the two of them is, is that Walsh, after Trump gets elected, he's a huge Trump guy. He ends up being he gets disenfranchised with Trump really for not being crazy enough, uh, in my opinion. And so now he's running. And it's funny because really his big take has been, look, I've said crazy things. I've said racist things. You know, I admit to saying all these things, but they were kind of sort of wrong. And I'm sorry about that. Yeah. That's effectively his apology this week. And so what he's basically attacking Donald Trump on, President Trump on, is to say, well, the difference between me and Trump is I've kind of apologized for it and Trump has it. Yeah. Now, yeah. can he win? I think the answer is obviously no. What does it mean? I, I really think that the meaning here is is that Trump is losing a little bit of his crazy base. Uh, and, and I don't I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean that in the sense that some of those kinds of supporters who were going to go along with 
his more outlandish claims seem to be abandoning him. And the fact that Walsh is going to uh, mount a campaign to me signals that he he might have some trouble inside the party yeah. in a way he may not be expecting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you on Walsh because uh, he's this talk radio guy who I think is just looking for a way to kind of brand himself, increase his audience. And this is a great way to do that. You know, this I, whole thing. Does that sound like anything from 2016? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I lo- I loved the Trump campaign uh, spokesperson's uh, response to this when when he was asked about Walsh coming into the race. He said, "Whatever." <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. But but to your larger point, primary challenges to an incumbent president uh, from his own party are always a sign of weakness. You look at, you look at in the modern era, you have, uh, McCarthy challenged Johnson in 68. Johnson chose not to seek reelection. Uh, Reagan challenged Ford in 76 and Ford lost, uh, Carter challenged, sorry, Kennedy challenged Carter in 1980 and Carter lost and a Buchanan challenged Bush in 1992. And of course Bush lost. So, I mean, this is, I did say clearly a, a troubling thing for Donald Trump, not that either of these candidates have a chance, I, uh, but the fact of what it signifies about uh, people in his own party having issues with him. Though, of course, you know, Trump's job approval of, among Republicans is 84 percent. That's pretty darn good. And and I think he's still going to get just about all those Republican votes. So uh, but, you know, I was thinking, Trey, I would imagine if you had to choose between Walsh and Weld being uh, being libertarian yourself, you would probably be a lot more comfortable uh, uh, pushing the button, pulling the lever, what have you for for Bill Weld, I would guess. Agreed. Yes. Uh, but I recognize that, you know, I could also pull a lever for you and, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah, about exactly. as much chance of winning. Yeah. Throwing away your vote. Yeah. And that's, uh, and that's, and, and, and therein lies my argument for ranked choice voting. But again, that's a, that's a whole, <laughs> there are, that's a whole are, series you're doing as a you know, matter of absolutely, fact. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'll get to that in exhausting the, de- hopefully not exhausting detail. Anyway. Um, all right. You know, let's move on to the Democrats. What do you say? Because um, I think there there's an actual real race. Uh, the field Somebody could win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the field narrowed a little bit this week. Uh, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand dropped out of the race after failing to qualify for the next debate, which is going to be held on September 12th. Now, Gillibrand, who started out as a centrist in her political career, moved to the left when she took over Hillary Clinton's New York Senate seat. And then in this campaign sort of positioned herself as the main promoter of women's rights. And of course, here we have a big state senator who pushed a lot of issues that you'd think would matter to Democratic primary voters. And she spent a good amount of money on her campaign, thanks in large part to the fact that she had a $10 million Senate war chest that she pretty much just wiped out to, to, you know, get to under under one percent in the polls, but a uh, little bit of uh, a hubris or something. I don't know. But what's your sense, Trey, of why she never caught on? Now, I know this isn't a Trey Orndorff original, but I think the the big reason here is that she went after uh, Senator Al Franken uh, during the Me Too movement against him. Now, I'm not taking sides between Gillibrand or Franken, and this is not an argument inside of the party of what ought or not ought to have happened. But I think she alienated a lot of the major donors. And I think there's been a lot of regret on the Democratic side for ousting one of their own in the era of Trump. And I think she was, I think she was getting paid back a little bit, at least when it came to trying to raise money and gaining a little bit of traction among establishment Democrats. Yeah. I, you know, that, that might be part of it. My, my sense is another part of the picture is that a lot of people on the left just didn't really trust her. I mean, here's somebody who started out as a corporate lawyer and, and right away that sends up red flags to me. And she started out as a conservative, you know, uh, uh, fairly to the right of almost everyone else in the race. And then all of a sudden, well, you know, I'm representing the state of New York. And so I can move further to what what do people want me to be? Basically, I, I don't I never got really a strong sense of conviction from her. Just sort of a what do you want me to be? What's going to work? for me at that kind of opportunistic branding sort of thing. And maybe that's unfair, but 
it's my perception. And I think it's the perception, of course, that that matters. And I think the candidates that tend to be able to stick and get some traction are the candidates who are able to sell that perception that they authentically stand for something. And that just I never got that feel from her, you know. Well, and you're sure. I mean, it has been long true in the literature and political science. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, you know media politics, the handbook by Iyengar. Sure. And they suggest that one of the major, at least at the primary level, which didn't distinguish who can win from who can lose. Do you have the appearance of flip flopping? Yeah. Where you have the appearance of, of shifting, and that doesn't have to even just be true. And it could be that you had honest uh, evolution in your thinking, but it doesn't matter. It's still going to harm you. So there is truth. There is definitely demonstrated truth to that. Yeah. And that's always a, a, a tough thing, I think, to judge. And uh, that that idea of, you know, we were talking before about the uh, uh, the crack cocaine thing and the war, you know, the war on crime and all that. And and so we have somebody like a Joe Biden who had some positions in the 90s that clearly today are just not good winning popular or even smart positions for a lot of reasons to have. And so when we see Joe Biden change his views on things, do we say, well, okay, he looked at what worked and what didn't in the past. And he, I love this word evolved, (laughs) or is it the case where it's like, well, okay, I saw which way the wind was blowing. It like, sort of like how uh, Obama and Clinton, you know, even in the, even in the early to mid two thousands were anti, uh, same-sex marriage, but all of a sudden they quickly evolved on that issue, which I, I have a hard time buying, essentially. I think they were there all the time and just couldn't, couldn't say it, essentially. And that's, that's a really tough thing to be able to figure out, you know, whether it's an opportunistic flip-flop or a kind of a reasonable evolution. Well, and, you know, that's, you, you use that word evolution a bunch of times and kind of laugh at it. And I would like to talk about that a little bit here yeah. because I think one of the things that's difficult when you're talking about, and this is how it kind of relates to Gillibrand, is that we oftentimes pitch people moving to what is a contemporary accepted position as being an evolution. And I think we do that because that language indicates that this new position is better than the old position. Right. But of course, there's never been a time or a people group who haven't said, oh, look, my, my positions yeah. are the best. You're doing the same thing that happened in the 90s. They thought in the 90s they had a great position. And I think one of the things that we have to come to grips with when we're looking at candidates is that there isn't necessarily a perfect answer. And just because we have a popular answer now doesn't mean that's the right you know, universal Mm -hmm. answer. And until we can get to the place where we can say that we're never really going to be able to analyze candidates in a sophisticated or a meaningful way. Not that debates or these are ever set up to let us analyze them in meaningful ways. Yeah. And of course, speaking of debates that that don't give us much information, I mean, now we know that there's only going to be one night of the next debate with uh, 10 candidates because there were 10 candidates who met that requirement. Of and did two- you see the amount of time they're going to give them each? Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, one yeah, well, minute and 15 seconds, there you one go. minute and 15 seconds for direct responses. Do you really need all that time? Five seconds <laughs> for, for rebuttals. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, I, I know that we share this and so I'm just, yeah, you know, <laughs> but it baffles my mind that any reasonable human being can think that you can learn any that's not even barely an ad on television you're going to learn more from their television spots yep. than you are from this and it 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 ang- it, it angers me I'm gonna I, be I agree it, it's it who has the best sound bites i mean a, yes. a responsible dnc would have actually still kept two nights so they could have give them, given each candidate at least twice the amount of time. But of course, they wanted to get them all on the stage because it's the big showdown between Biden and Warren and Sanders and the big three all together. And because it's showbiz, you know, that's, you yes. know, and that's, but, 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 you know, I think that the interest, one of the interesting things about this is the candidates who didn't quite make the cut. And the three candidates who met at least one of the requirements were uh, Gabbard, Steyer, and Williamson. But they actually have some hope of making it to the next debate because the requirement is exactly the same, except they're going to have more time to hit. 
those benchmarks. And I'm sure you've heard, Trey, there's been some grumbling about the lack of transparency in the process. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard mentioned on Twitter uh, after she failed to qualify and she gave an interview. I think it's uh, uh, Tucker Carlson. Oh, anyone would talk to Tucker Carlson at this point. I don't know. But but speaking of craven opportunism, but uh, <laughs> it seems to me that this is, in fact, this is based on her wanting the DNC to count polls that weren't pre-approved. But the argument that this isn't transparent, that's, that's a, I think it's a ridiculous argument in a sense because everyone knew what the polls were and there were 16 of them. So it's not like it's just a couple of favored polls. They're all respected organizations. And I really think that she, by doing this, is sort of kind of casting doubt on the legitimacy of the Democratic the, the large D democratic process, which kind of hurts the party. And, and so I think that uh, a much better response was basically like sort of a, a Tim Scott, a, a Tim, Tim Ryan, sorry, Tim Ryan's response. Of course, Tim Ryan didn't come close to meeting anything, but basically said, well, you know, didn't get there. Oh, well, I'll keep on trying. So, uh, so yeah, I was sort of disappointed in her response. Well, and to be honest about this, this is just the second phase, the third phase, however you want to think about it, of Democrats having problems with their party structure. And let's be honest, the last time the Democrats had a big issue with the party structure, they threw parties out effectively. And that's why you've got this many candidates, because it becomes a media free for all where we're getting no time at all. Uh, you know, historically speaking, we have uh, media dominated primary elections because there was a worry that there were going to there were all these kind of backroom party deals going on. Well, yeah. the downside to taking away the party's power. And again, here, if you do it even further, you're just, again, putting it further in the hands of media establishments yeah. to make the make those decisions. So I recognize they sound good in the immediate when you're losing, when you're not making it or when you don't understand all of it. But they have they have real consequences and some of them are not positive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I also I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the 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 way we see the race right now, because it, it sure seems to obviously looking at all the polling data, you have, uh, you know, you have the big three, uh, yep. Biden, Warren and Sanders, and then everyone else. And it looked for a while like Harris had a shot of joining that group. And this is kind of back in early to mid July, but since then she's sort of fallen back into what I'd say is a sort of a two person second tier. And that's, uh, that's Harris and, and Buttigieg. And, but aside from that, then there's just a whole bunch of people who can't ever seem to crack 3% in the polls. And, mm. and, and so I'm wondering, you know, do you see anyone emerging to challenge the Biden Warren Sanders triumvirate or, 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 or not? Look, I, when it comes to elections, I am a I am a strong proponent of, in the political science literature of the idea that structural variables play a bigger role in this yeah. than do the individual campaigns. And so the answer is, is, I don't think there's anything that any of those can do to change the structural factors that have led yeah. to the big three. And so my answer is, is no, I don't think they can. Not no, because I don't think they're, as I've already mentioned on the show, I'm a fan of, of Cory Booker, for example. Um, so it's not that I, I wouldn't like them to be able to have that opportunity, but I don't think their campaigns matter in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as as they get increasingly desperate to break out in these upcoming debates, we're going to see more and more sort of uh, interesting, I guess I'll say, attempts for them to kind of create some sort of separation from the pack, though, though I'm, I'm with you. I'm much more of a kind of a fundamental factors and structures sort of person. And I, I don't I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, Sanders and Warren are running in a similar lane. They're pretty close right now in the polls, though Sanders has been trending down. Warren's been trending up. My sense is that that continues and barring any sort of bizarre debate campaign gaffes, this ends up as a two person race between kind of you have the moderate ring, moderate wing and Biden and the more progressive wing that's going to be represented by Warren. And certainly anything can happen. But I would be reasonably surprised if that isn't how it ended ended up uh, playing out. That wouldn't be my choice. I actually uh, I actually like Cory Booker quite a lot. Uh, and of course, I like uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, though I think he's not quite seasoned enough, but I don't think any of them has either of them has a realistic chance. No, they just don't have enough. I mean, one of the structural issues is they don't have enough money. Yeah. And, well, and of course, I, you know, 
Buttigieg has been good in terms of raising a lot of money. He's been pretty impressive in that, but it's just, he just hasn't hasn't caught on w- with enough groups and that even though with the fundraising the polling numbers just have not really been able to to move a whole heck of a lot so you know i always tell i always tell the students you know, money is like the oxygen of politics it's a it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition you yes. can have all the money in the world but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get anywhere with that though if you don't of course you're going to be you're going to be sunk essentially so at, at this point trey who do you think would be, I don't think I've asked you this question yet, who do you think would be the most serious threat to Donald Trump? And I know I think it was Will asked this in a question on the Facebook group uh, this week. And some of the answers I think maybe were who I would like to see most as president. So <laughs> yep. uh, well, what do you think in terms of the, the biggest challenge to Donald Trump? I think that the 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 biggest challenge is either going to come from Sanders or from Biden and and I'll explain why. Hmm. I okay. think that if I think if 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 Sanders loses out to Warren because Warren like you had already mentioned Warren and Sanders are going after the progressive wing. But I think much like Trump Sanders has a following of almost the Bernie bros <laughs> and they didn't stick last last go round. So I think that if Warren ends up being the winner and Sanders loses and Sanders loses, I think that a lot of those people will make the same from their point of view, at least mistake that they made the last go round, which is not coming behind Warren in the way they ought if they want to beat Trump. So if you get Sanders winning, I think you can have a competitive race. I think overall, the most competitive, though. Is Biden, yeah, yeah. and I, I mean, I understand progressives, so don't get me wrong. I, I'm not, I recognize that we have differences of opinion, and this has nothing to do with the fact that I disagree with Sanders on most things. But the problem for Sanders is, is that on a number of areas, he can't differentiate himself from Trump. For in, like on trade policy, sure. what's he to say? Yeah. I mean, we Trump, he's doing I me. Mean, I understand that he's saying it and doing it in kind of a bombastic way. But what's fundamentally policy different that Sanders is going to do? And and I think that's a really difficult place in the general election to be bonus. He is a democratic socialist, and that's not yeah. going to play well when it comes to the general election. And I'm sorry for everybody who who thinks otherwise, but that is in fact the way the case. Yeah, Biden, I, I, on the other I hand, agree. Has won. He's a centrist. He has shown he can win. He is a relatable, likable guy. And while he has his his moments, <laughs> right? Um, his moments are generally not the the Trump cringe and uh, uh, worthy. They're more like the Oh man, that's my next door neighbor kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that that plays well. Well, you know, I, I agree mostly. I, I certainly think that the whole democratic socialist thing would just turn off way too many voters. I understand like you do the enthusiasm argument, but I don't really buy it because I think in the end, people are going to come home to vote with their, their parties and, and the, the Sanders people aren't going to stay home if it's a choice between Warren or even Biden and Trump, given, you know, that the, the the strong desire, especially as you get into the progressive left, to have essentially anyone but Trump. So when when they're faced with that in election day, they say, well, do I want four years of Joe Biden or four more years of Donald Trump? I think for almost anyone on the left, that's a really easy decision to make. The interesting thing to me about uh, Biden is that he is sort of at the same time the safe choice and and in a way a risky choice. I mean, he's safe in the sense that he's got that sort of centrist sort of, well, I will continue the Obama stuff, except the stuff you don't like, whatever. But but I mean, he's I think he's least likely to alienate some of those centrist sort of voters who potentially could not so much go either way, but maybe just kind of stay home. But the gaps do concern me. I know you you sort of downplay them, but I, I can see them becoming an issue, especially if maybe it's not just Biden being Biden, but a case where as you get older, the gaffes get more. And of course, he would be the uh, 78 when he's inaugurated. He'd be, he's certainly the oldest person to to run a major campaign. And, and to me, that's been a concern 
from the beginning. And I could see a situation where something in a, you know, in a, in a debate, something goes off the rails and Trump pounces on that because he's great at doing that. And so that's my concern with, uh, with, with someone like Joe Biden. I mean, if I could just sort of wave a wand and have one of the Democratic candidates appear as the challenger, I think I'd probably make that Cory Booker because I don't think that would be an issue for for him certainly, and I like him for a lot of other reasons as well. But uh, but but I don't see that happening. No, and it's funny that we ended up, and we had done this a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, both wound up on Booker, but I I think the one other positive here about Biden, like Booker, is I think that Biden. Now I recognize Trump. He's got an 85 percent rate uh, inside the Republican Party, and and you're not ever trying to, you're not going to pick up a lot of those votes. But I don't think that a Sanders or a Warren. I think a Biden can get some Republicans. I don't think that a Sanders or a Warren can get Republicans. And Trump is a candidate where you can legitimately talk about having some individuals who, instead of staying home to vote, would vote for a Biden. Uh, and and as I, I would I would put myself into that category personally. Yeah. And and of course, the Democrats don't really need to pick up a whole lot of votes to uh, to have the election go go their way. It was a pretty thin margin the first time the first time around. And the changing demographics, even in the last four years, make things a little bit easier in some senses for the Democrats. So I, I my my sense is I would be concerned on the on the age and gap thing for Biden. I would be concerned concerned on the Democratic Socialist thing for uh, for uh, Bernie Sanders. But I, I feel reasonably comfortable that whoever the Democrats nominate is going to be the odds on favorite. But of course, you know, Hillary Clinton was the odds on favorite as well. So, <laughs> yep. so I, I'm not going to count my chickens or anything like that. So uh, let's move on to the Senate, because, of course, uh, uh, this week is some big news. Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson announced that he would be resigning his seat effective December 31st due to health reasons, meaning that both of Georgia's Senate seats will now be on the ballot in 2020. And of course, now what's going to happen is Georgia's Republican governor will appoint somebody to fill that seat until the election. And uh, then that person, well, I don't know if that person will will run, but probably there's a good chance that they will. Now, now this, I would say, is unquestionably good news for the Democratic Party. Georgia's less red than it used to be. I mean, Trump won it, but but I think like five points. So it's it's doable. And of course, Stacey Abrams came pretty close to winning the governorship there. Uh, but even so, especially given the fact that Abrams says that she's not going to run for this, uh, I think the odds are probably against them picking up a seat. But, uh, you know, it looks a lot better than than it did uh, a week ago for the Democrats, I'd say. What do you think, Trey? Well, the the worst thing for Republicans here is money. You're talking about having to spend money on two concurrent elections in 2020 because you're going to have your the normal election going on plus the special election going on. You're having two Senate seats up. And I mean, I recognize that when when you're looking at these from the outside, it looks like the parties have unlimited amounts of money, but they don't. And you're right. It is more competitive than it used to be. And that means you're now having to run two more competitive elections than you normally would have. This is not happy news for Republicans in the Senate. Now, I think it's a bigger deal in the sense that it's going to have to stretch them thinner when it comes to funding. I think the fact that Abrams won't want run is a signal that that she thinks that 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 Dems can't pick up a seat here. Yeah, but. As long as they can run somebody competitively, uh, in other words, they're not pulling in a third stringer, what they can do is pull money away from other potential seats and and attention from other potential seats. And I think that will hurt Republicans in a lot of other places as well. See, I actually think Abrams probably thinks that if she ran she could win or at least could come really, really close given her given her uh, showing in the, you know, just in the 2018 uh, uh, gubernatorial race. But but also I think she's looking at the vice presidency. I mean, there's been a lot of talk that the Biden campaign is interested. And so if that worked out, if everything worked out, you could easily envision Abrams saying, well, OK, so I'm setting myself up for 2028 or even you know, 2024, depending on Biden's health and that sort of thing. So I think she's eyeing a path to the presidency. 
And if so, it's maybe a little bit more direct path if things sort of play out the way she hopes they will, as opposed to going into the Senate. At least that's, I I can't believe that's entirely absent from her calculations. You know, if it is, I mean, if I, if I were consulting her, I would all I I just have one word for her, and that would be Pence. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you you should never pin your political hopes on the vice presidency. Um, and I, I, even here, Joe Biden has has a tough go. I I don't see that as being a politically smart move. I mean, again, if you were paying me and I was your advisor, my answer would be: if you think you can make the run, you make the run because then you're the person who's getting the experience. You're the person in the Senate. And one thing that we know that has shifted over time in American politics is senators can make competitive runs for the presidency. That wasn't always true. Uh, So there's no reason to go, well, I'm going to curse myself, uh, which which would have been the case a few decades ago. Well, you know, and we've seen a lot of a lot of Democrats just seem to look at look on the Senate as well. You know, I couldn't just settle to be a senator. My gosh, I don't know. That seems that doesn't really seem like settling to me. But of course, if you're if you look at look in the mirror, that what's the joke is that what what's a senator see when when he or she looks in the mirror, a, a future president, you know that kind of thing. I guess you know. So so yeah, if that's what you think of yourself, say, well, I clearly would be a great president. And saying, well, being one of being one of a hundred seems like a huge step down. But my God, the ego involved in that. So anyway. Um, yeah. Speaking of ego, uh, this week it was, yeah, yeah nice segue. <laughs> that was the greatest segue I think we had. <laughs> but, you know, it, we're, well, let, let's talk about President Trump here. I, it was reported this week that he told officials he would pardon them for any illegal activity involving construction of a Mexico border law, wall. Now, the president immediately denied this. He tweeted another totally capital F fake story in the Amazon Washington Post lobbyist, which states that if my aides, capital A, okay, broke the law to build the wall, capital W, he's kind of doing like the capitalization of the, of the framers, I guess, sort of thing going on here. The wall, which is going up rapidly, I would give them a capital P pardon. This was made up by the Washington Post only in order to demean and disparage all caps, fake news. Um, I love, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with his tweets. Uh, uh, but anyway, a number of Democrats, of course, responded. That's exactly the sort of thing you'd expect of Donald Trump, which is one of the many reasons that he's unfit to be president. Now, Trey, here's my take on this. It seems to me it's exactly the sort of thing you can imagine Donald Trump saying and then sort of dismissing as a joke if evidence actually came out that he said it. Because, of course, all we have are these reports and we shouldn't, you know, uh, unless somebody's willing to come out on the record and say their name, then, you know, that's all that is. And we should, you know, make that, make that point. Mm-hmm. But, but I think, you know, it's interesting that, uh, I think pretty clearly promising a pardon to lawbreakers would amount to obstructing justice. But that said, I don't even know if, if let's say the president did promise this to somebody, just let's, let's assume that these reports are true. I don't know that any reasonable Trump administration official would take the president at his word. I mean, I I sure wouldn't. My sense is that the president's promises aren't worth much and that basically if push comes to shove, he'd pardon people if he thought it would be good for him. But he'd he'd renege in a heartbeat on any promise that he thought wasn't to his advantage. And here's a large that's a larger point to me. When you're trying to lead a big organization like, you know, the United States uh, executive branch. And when you have a documented record like Donald Trump has, people don't take you at your word. And so it's going to be a lot harder to get things done. You know, this I have thought about Trump a lot the the last couple of months because this is kind of my area. I actually think that this is a Donald Trump win. Oh, okay, I want to hear this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Let me let me explain this. Uh, I think I kind of understand this attack. Now, think about this. So. Donald Trump, my guess is he probably did joke about something like this in the White House, and he probably even might wanted it to get out. And here's my thought, because this gets out, comes out on on uh, in The Washington Post, and all the people who aren't going to vote for Donald Trump go, here's yet another reason why I don't want to vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But it gives him a chance to both rail at an outlet which is one of his favorite pastimes and gets him a lot of, uh, of uh, positive coverage. And two, 
it allows him to bring the conversation back to his big, beautiful wall, which in fact was one of the big things that brought a lot yeah. of people to his candidacy. Yeah. These kinds of tweets, I know that they seem insane, and that's because in a sense that they are, but I actually think that there might be strategy in that sense. Now, maybe he hasn't. This could just be intuitive. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, he sat down, he's going to write a book, you know, how to be a better uh, strategic right, tweet. Right. <clears throat> but whether he's done it intuitively or otherwise, I think these kinds of moments help not hurt him because he both now gets to talk about the wall and for the people who want to have it, this looks like the guy who's going to get it done no matter what. Or it looks like the guy who's trying to get it done and, they're st and he's still trying to be stopped. Yeah. What's the downside to any of this for Trump? I don't see it. You know, that, so yeah, that, that, that's really interesting because I, I think I, I agree with you that uh, I, I think that it's probably not a strategic thing. He's just intuitively good at this sort of this sort of communication. And, you know, well, I think there's been this sort of bias, at least in the past, that this consideration that, well, how do you win elections? Well, you secure your base and then you try to get some people in the middle. but. More and more, it seems like we're finding that that's not really the effective strategy. And the strategy is to not really worry about the middle and just to energize the hell out of your base and kind of get those people going. And maybe if you can get some people on the other side to stay home, that's that's actually an easier strategy. And given that Trump has almost zero chance of winning somebody, it's not like there are people who are sort of like, I don't know how I feel about Donald Trump. I mean, you know, so <laughs> it's not like that. That's even a possibility. I wouldn't think that, you know, that might actually be, there might actually be something to that. What, what you're saying about that being a win for him. That's interesting. Well, and, and think about the middle, Mike, because so, you know, earlier when we were talking about kind of the differentiation between the inability to differentiate between Sanders and Trump when it comes to economic policy, I think one of the things that probably makes Trump a little closer to the median is when you take a look at polls, people are not big on pu pushing individuals out, that kind of view. But and this is a big but. When it, when it becomes personal, when it becomes the NIMBY issue in their backyard, yeah. the idea of not just money, but of people coming in and, and using up their resources, that's a popular position. Sure. And I mean, again, this is not my position, but it's this, the same reason that we want to have trade wars and trade wars are relatively popular right now is the same reason that people are a little hesitant on the immigration issue. And so while many of them probably in, in that middle would never be willing to say, oh, wall, they're still going to go, well, the guy who wants the wall is going to be closer to the not letting all the, you know, right? And again, I see this as another win, even potentially in the middle. Hmm. Interesting. I, I don't I don't know that I agree with the win in the middle thing, but I but I understand at least I understand your logic on that. Uh, yeah, I also wanted to talk about the wall itself, because, of course, mm -hmm. as, as you, you know, referred to, this is uh, a pretty key thing for the president. He claimed that rapid progress is being made. Now, if you actually look at the, the you know, the facts, uh, the, the fake news, I don't know, from the Army Corps of Engineer, well, engineers, well, uh, to this point, 60 miles of replacement barrier has been constructed, and uh, the president has promised to have 500 miles completed by the 2020 uh, election. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but obviously that's why he's pushing so hard to ignore environmental issues, property rights concerns, to try and get as much up as possible. Uh, also, interestingly, he's taken sort of a keen interest in the aesthetics of the yes. wall. He wants it to be big and black with spikes at the top. And now from what I'm told, the black painting it black makes sense as a deterrent because it will make the wall hotter. And, and I'm guessing or I'm told uh, apparently somewhat slipperier and so more difficult to climb. But. That's also at the expense of more wall being built. According to uh, the administration's own internal analysis, painting or coating 175 miles of border wall will add between 70 and $133 million in cost, which would translate in the four to seven miles less wall being built. And that's the same kind of story when we talk about the spikes at the top. Now, the president wants them because he thinks it'll be intimidating, but also that raises the cost and means that less actual wall will be built. Now, my take on this, Trey, is that, number one, 
it sends a horrible message. This big black wall with spikes at the top. It, you know, it says, keep out. We don't want you. That sort of, but of course that's what he's going for. So, right. okay, fine. But more to the point, this really doesn't address the problem. The immigration problem, which both sides admit we have, the problem is, A, our, our asylum system, uh, along with people staying in the country on expired visas. That's the vast bulk of the 12 million or so undocumented immigrants in this country right now. So what this is, this is a wasteful, ugly, symbolic policy that not only goes against what this country stands for or should stand for, in my view, but but it, you know, it. Think how many more immigration judges you could get for, I don't know, three and a half billion dollars or what this could do to improve infrastructure for the real undocumented immigrant situation. But no, we we need the symbolism of a big, ugly, intimidating, keep out, we don't want your kind wall. And it's just it's sad on a lot of levels to me. You know, it, as we were prepping for this story, this doesn't often happen to me, but we were prepping for this story and I uh, and I was at the Washington Post website because they have all the things about the new the, the potential contracts. They're putting up a bunch of test pilot walls, if mm-hmm. you will, and they have all the costs and which companies are putting them out. And and the thing that's mean maybe interesting to some and I'm kind of looking at it is they have all of these pictures and you they're 3D and you can actually spin them around and see what the wall would look like from all these different angles. And I was doing it and Mike, all of a sudden I was so disgusted that the fact that I was looking at the aesthetics of a Southern wall that I had to like, just turn my iPad off and just like (laughs) get a drink. Um, I don't care how you're going to paint it. And I understand that there could be, and and I I'd read some similar things, you know, they might make a few less people getting over it. But is that really what it is for us to be American now yeah. that we're going to, I mean, this, this is the symbol that we're going to have. And I know it's been a couple of weeks ago, you know, when they kind of rewrote who we want coming in on the Statue of Liberty. And, yeah. You know, Bring me your tired, your poor white Europeans. Um, is I think <laughs> how it was, you know. Well, and by poor, we mean not too, too poor. But yeah, anyway. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I I knew you would agree with me. I was pretty sure you'd agree with me on this because if anything on immigration, you know, you're you're a little bit more uh, uh, probably a little you're less. (laughs) You know, you know exactly. So so yeah, this is a this is it. But but even if here's the thing, Trey. Even if you want to force more people out or keep more people out who are whatever brown or black or poor, this isn't the way to do it. Yeah. So it's dumb on a lot of levels. I mean, if you really don't want people here, you're going to need, as you mentioned, to hire more people to get them back out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's not as if the vast majority of people coming here are not coming here because they've hopped the border and now they're here. It's here because they came in some legal way and then they don't go back. Yeah, exactly. And the wall does a wall does nothing there. You know, but but that to me. That to me is why, even if I were a conservative, which, you know, I was in a previous lifetime, I'd be disappointed by President Trump because it seems like Trump through and through is style, I mean, such as it is, uh, over substance. And there are so many opportunities that he could have, that he has potentially to advance conservative uh, agenda items that he just simply is not taking advantage of because, you know, Donald Trump's agenda is all about Donald Trump. I'm, I'm convinced I've been convinced from the beginning. And so I, I don't see how, even if you're a conservative, you think that this is, you know, a, a good thing. Well, here's the bottom line answer, Mike. And that is that th- the idea, this is just one big and important example. And you talked about it being style over substance. That's what generates attention. Nobody cares. Nobody, no voter cares about the substance of a policy. I can barely get students to care about the substance of the things, right? And and, and you understand that. And so I recognize for the people who listen to this show, you probably do care, but you're also the teeny tiny minority. Uh, That's a great point. Yeah. And, and, And as a result, the reason this works is because that's what people look to. And let's be honest. I mean, there is an obvious course of action. If, if either side really won, I think we could get some bipartisan support about this. If we really wanted to tackle this, all you'd have to do is start holding companies accountable 
for hiring individuals Amen. who don't mm-hmm. have the proper work. Don't prosecute the individuals who take the job. Prosecute yep. the companies. When and that would get rid of the pull. That would get rid yep. of the pull, and it would make it. A, and that would solve the problem. But nobody wants to do that. They want to have these symbolisms. But that yep. that policy right there. Prosecute the stop prosecuting the workers. Prosecute the companies who violate the law in hiring these people. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I I am so on board with that. I could I could not agree more with you on that. But unfortunately, I just don't see it happening for no. for a, a bunch of reasons. But but hey, you know, on that note of complete and utter agreement, maybe we should stop at that <laughs> point while we're ahead. But, but we're not really going to stop because, of course, as soon as we're done recording this show, we're going to do our special ex- uh, supporters exclusive show. And this week, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the, the regulatory battle over fake meat labeling and also how our ostensibly meritocratic system favors the rich and what, well, if anything, we can do about there's some interesting proposals that I'm looking forward to talking about with you, Trey. Um, Also for supporters at the $5 per month uh, and above level, Kristen actually is taking some time from battening down the hatches to, she put together a politics guys quick take for you. And I'm looking forward to hearing that myself. So, if you're a supporter, that should be ready for you by the time you hear this. And of course, it's just one of the supporters only things that we have for you to so check them all out. Patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can go to politics slash support. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at mail at politics There's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we're also on Twitter at politics guys. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, we would really appreciate it if you do that. It helps us out as does rating and reviewing the show, letting people know about it. That would be super. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.